be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today I'm visiting with Joshua Young the founder and portfolio manager of Young Capital Management. Previously, Josh served as an analyst at a multi-billion dollar single-family office in Los Angeles. Prior to that, he was an investment analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners. He was also a corporate strategy consultant at Mercer Management Consulting and Diamond Cluster. He holds a BA in economics from the University of Chicago, and Josh is one of the fund managers I see regularly when I attend corporate presentations in downtown Los Angeles. Since we spoke uh, about six weeks ago, what has your experience been with relation to oil and gas investments? Unfortunately, my uh, analogy to 2008 may have been uh, more uh, prescient than I than I expected. Uh, stocks have been down substantially, particularly in the uh, small cap uh, oil and gas space. Oil prices are down from a high of, I think, a month ago. They were at as high as $105 a barrel, and now they've been as low as $80 a barrel recently. And and that's had a huge impact on uh, the prices of a number of different stocks in the sector. Any indication as far as consumption, uh, supply and demand issues? Well, the last time we spoke, uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, informally we talked about the Wilshire Indicator, which is uh, that near your office there's a Wilshire Boulevard near the 405 freeway, and the uh, traffic on Wilshire actually is somewhat correlated with the price of oil. When uh, gas prices go above about 4 or $4.50 a gallon here in L.A., people tend to stop driving as much and traffic seems to clear up. Gas is back down and it appears that traffic is worse than ever. So obviously that's just one sort of incidental indicator, but it appears that consumption is actually not hurt as badly as you'd expect based on the $25 price uh, movement in the uh, price of oil. I think that's kind of ominous, yeah, especially during the beginning of the summer driving season with uh, such a drop in oil prices. Uh, it's ominous for our economy. It's ominous for the world. I think that's fair. I think that really everyone's kind of waiting to see what happens in Europe, and I think people are waiting to see what happens with the Fed and to see if there's another sort of round of quantitative easing. I think it's uh, going to be somewhat binary. I think if there's quantitative easing and if uh, Europe manages to uh, at least uh, kick the can down the road. I think you could see equity prices go up a lot, and I think you see oil rebound and potentially go up even more than it was at uh, earlier this year. I think if you see uh, Europe fall apart and or you see uh, limited quantitative easing in the U.S. in particular, I think you could see things get even uglier and you could see prices go down even more. And yeah, I think your, your point about there being less driving this early in the driving season, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's scary a little bit, but it seems to actually have picked up a little bit in the last month or so versus uh, when, when we spoke last. 
Now, we've got a lot of factors affecting the price of oil and affecting the, the dollar right now. Let's say the collapse of the euro is, is, is off in the future. The eurozone breaks up. Everyone calls Greece the big trigger here. I don't know if that's necessarily true. That just boosts the dollar, and if, if the dollar is you know, worth more compared to other currencies and or gold, specifically oil, then that in itself makes it cheaper to buy, well, oil in the world market, doesn't it? Well, honestly, I'm just going to have to defer here. I, I'm really, I'm not a macro analyst. There are brilliant hedge fund managers like Ray Dalio at Bridgewater. There are really smart people who make tons of money in currency trading and tons of money making directional bets on commodities. I prefer to just buy stocks that are incredibly cheap, that are hedged, that have good production prospects and that are low cost. And I think if you buy stocks that are cheap relative to their fundamental value, that are growing rapidly and that are growing economically that over the long run you'll do well and as long as those companies aren't over levered and are able to fund their debt and fund their capital programs even in a negative uh, economic scenario I think the long run I'll do well and honestly you know I try to not pay too much attention to currency movements or macro price movements and commodities because I think in really the true long run I think global economy will be fine and I think the US economy will be fine we may have uh, structural issues but I think those issues in the long run will get resolved I think that the challenge as an investor is to be able to find the areas in which you have an edge and where you can add value and I think the place that I can add value is finding small undervalued companies buying their stocks and finding overvalued companies and shorting them and finding other sorts of interesting trades to make and uh, in the long run that strategy has generated fantastic returns and I expect it to continue to generate great returns going forward. Well, let's talk about one of those companies right now that you like that you feel is undervalued. We've spoken about them on the program before, Gale Force Petroleum. Gale Force, since we last spoke, has made some progress. They uh, closed a financing that they were working on and closed an additional acquisition they were working on. And uh, they're in the process of blocking up that acquisition and drilling a number of wells and recompleting a number of wells. And we could actually see in the next couple of months them double their production from the start of the year. And they've reiterated that they're on track to produce over 800 barrels a day by the end of the year. And they could potentially be producing 1,000 barrels a day by early next year or even by the end of the year. And they've also reiterated their interest in potentially spinning off their production into a royalty trust. And that's important because royalty trusts are valued at over $200,000 per flowing barrel. And so there's a possibility that around the middle of next year, you could actually see them spin off a 1,000-barrel-a-day royalty trust at a $250 million value versus their current value of around $25 million. It's hard to find a, a producing resource company with a share price of under $0.50. Cents. It's uh, reasonably tightly held, uh, and you seem to have found one with the Gale Force. I was brought in by the largest shareholder introduced to the company. It was just not well marketed. Ironically, they've done everything right from an operational perspective and from a corporate finance perspective. They haven't been out there. They haven't been very promotional. They've been very focused on doing things right operationally, and their thought was if they build it, they'll come. And you know, I think over time that'll be true. But in the meantime, because they're not very promotional, the stock hasn't really run, and there's a great opportunity. I mean, I, I own a ton of stock, and I was actually looking today. I mean, I think it's extremely cheap relative to their near-term prospects. And yeah, I mean, I think the production is really exciting because I think that, especially in a low interest rate environment, given the high margins they generate in their production, there's an opportunity for them to bridge the gap of being a small producer where other small producers are also cheap. There's an opportunity for them to bridge the gap from the low valuations that small producers and small exploration companies are, are achieving 
to the high valuations that royalty trusts are achieving and the nature of their assets is such that they're conducive for that transition and they could potentially achieve an order of magnitude change in their valuation or more over a relatively short period of time. Would you consider increasing your position at some point? Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at it today. I didn't buy any today, but uh, I'm looking at potentially doing so in the near future. Let's talk about drilling economics for oil and gas as opposed to uh, precious metals or base metals. The numbers aren't even close, are they? Yeah, well, it's a little different. So with a gold mine, you can go and drill and spend a few million dollars drilling and end up with a billion-dollar discovery and sell it, and that's it. So with oil and gas, it's very different. You drill and you typically don't, with one well, create a billion-dollar asset. But what you do is you create cash flow. And so with Gilforce, relative to some other oil and gas companies, their wells are actually extremely high rate of return. The wells that are drilling now, I'd estimate, are going to generate high double digits to low triple-digit IRRs. And uh, a lot of their proved undeveloped locations also have the potential to generate triple-digit IRRs, which is very exciting because if you look at what your return on invested capital is into the stock, and you look at the company's expected ROIC, ROE, all these other sort of financial efficiency measures uh, and capital efficiency measures, you should expect that they should have a very high ROE compared to a lot of their competitors and just overall as a company. And so I think one of the, the keys for Gilforce is going to be getting valued as a growth company as they transition over into being a, a yield-oriented vehicle. And I think that as they show high returns and as they show high returns combined with high growth, I think it's possible that people will start to give them a really high valuation of the market. And a lot of what they're doing, the reason they're able to generate such high returns, relatively speaking, is they're coming into areas where there's already proven oil. They're drilling in relatively shallow fields. And they know what they have. They know the field. They come into fields where they've already been multiple wells drilled through them. They hadn't been produced because the price of oil had been a lot lower when the, the area had been drilled. They had been drilled for deep gas wells, so they know the different zones that are there. They have the opportunity to come back through these existing wells and recomplete them, and they have the opportunity to come in and drill relatively shallow oil wells that are relatively highly productive. So the combination of shallow, low cost with high productivity leads to extremely high rates of return, extremely high capital efficiency, and ultimately they may actually not need too much additional outside money. They may be able to bank finance almost all of their production growth going forward. And it's a very, very powerful model. And so, again, the combination of these high returns will lead to substantial cash flow and really um, attractive financial metrics, which I think, in addition to this transition over to a royalty trust, will really help capture value and will help the share price uh, increase substantially. So there's a lot less potential risk for, let's say, the retail investor if the company doesn't have to go back into the market and dilute the stock. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think they don't need to explore. So the, the exploration aspect of the business is de-risked and it's not really relevant, which is really exciting for a small company like that. They don't need to raise money to stay in business. So not only not for exploring, but to cover their overhead, they have enough cash flow to cover that. And they have enough cash flow to actually cover a large portion of their capital budget going forward. So they really don't need to go in and dilute like you were saying. And they also don't really need, some oil companies need $100 oil or $120 oil for their project 
projects to be highly economic, they don't need that. At $70 oil, their projects are all highly economic. So you can really see, of course, as oil prices came down, Gale Force stock came down too because they haven't shown yet how great their fields are. I think as they show well results and as they show how economic their fields are, I think you'll see the stock reprice and be a little bit less sensitive to oil price movements because they're so economic. It really doesn't matter. I mean, obviously, there's more profit when the oil is at 80 like it is now than when it is at 70. And obviously, there's more profit at 90 than at 80, but they don't need it. And the fact that they don't need it means that the equity price should be less sensitive to short-term movements in the price of oil and more sensitive to people's estimates of the longer-term price of oil. And there seems to be more consensus that in three years or five years or whatever, the, the price of oil will still be 90 or 100 or 110. Then it doesn't seem like that seems to be shifting too much. It seems like there's more a question of you know what happens to the world over the next few years through uh, what happens in Europe and China. But it still seems like the long-term picture for the world is, is pretty intact. So we can almost take the price of oil out of the equation and just look at a company that's generating revenue and invest in it according to what our belief may be about that revenue. Yeah, I mean, that's fundamentally how I look at Gelforce. I mean, it's extremely cheap. I look at it as a growth company that's trading at a discount to its liquidation value. And it's just, it's an aberration in the market. And the simple reason it's available is that the stock is relatively illiquid and the market cap is low. And they haven't been out at a lot of conferences and haven't really marketed the story. I think that as they show production growth, as they show substantial revenue and substantially increased cash flow, I think that they'll just show up on more people's tickers. They'll show up on more people's monitors. They'll show up on financial screens that people run for growing companies. They'll show up at quant funds as they're they're doing their screens. And I think you'll see just an increase in long-term fundamental holders that are looking for rapidly growing companies. And I think that that will help to, to re-rate the, the stock. And, you know, regardless of the, your view on the price of oil, unless you think oil is going to 50 or 40, which, I mean, would involve a very bleak view of the world for a long term, I think you could see Yale Force get substantially re-rated. And also, they, they have a lot of oil price hedges in place, so that even if oil went to 10, they'd have enough cash flow that they should be able to stay solvent for a period of time. So even like in the absolute bleakest, you know, Lehman Brothers times three disaster, where oil went to 35, well, multiply by three, you know, oil goes down to 10 or 12, Gale Force should still be able to survive for a little while. And again, you're a shareholder and they're a sponsor of this program. Yeah, and uh, I, they've paid me for consulting work in the past where I've helped them with their hedging program and other stuff. But yeah, I'm a significant shareholder, and like I said, I'm looking at potentially building my position in the public markets. Josh, thank you very much for joining us today on the program. I've been chatting with Joshua Young, manager of Young Capital Management on the road not too far from home at Morton Steakhouse in downtown Los Angeles. We've been speaking about sponsor Gale Force Petroleum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GFP. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. In this segment, I'll speak with Edward Kelly, the president of Inca One Resources, trading under the symbol IO on the TSX Venture Exchange. Inca One is a Canadian junior exploration company operating in northern Peru. Ed, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Pleasure to be on air with you. Now, you're doing business in Peru, which is the largest gold-producing country in South America. Why don't we know this? Well, that's a good question. I think Peru probably gets sort of overlapped with all the other metals that are being produced in South America, copper, silver, zinc, and overshadowed by Chile, probably. Why the name Inca One for your company? We 
decided to name the company Inca, just an Inca One, for the fact that it registers with the local people, and we wanted to be able to um, make that connection with the local people there and sort of make them feel like they're a part of the project along the way. Tell us about the Las Vaquillas project, if you don't mind. Sure. Las Vaquillas project, it's a project that was first prospected on, I guess, in the 70s by the Peruvian government when everything was nationalized in the country and really before modern-day exploration and mining practices took place. The country got on the map because of being a producing country. And in the 80s, the Peruvian government did a joint venture with the German government to go in and do exploration work on the Las Vaquillas project. And they put in four underground tunnels, did about a little bit of drilling, eight holes, 1,500 meters and took it to what in those days would be a pre-feasibility report. Then later on, I guess in the 90s, governments changed, philosophies changed in how to be able to move ahead as an industry in the mining space. They privatized, and this project was sold off to another Canadian junior in the mid-90s. Do you consider yourself a polymetallic company? It's definitely a region that we're working in. I would say we're more of an exploration company looking for gold and silver and copper. From what I understand, the grades of gold are fairly significant, you believe? In those days, the majority of the, of the drilling was done in the, in the late 90s, 96, 97, and 98. About 6,500 meters of drilling was done by another Canadian junior. And just taking to a pre-feasibility report in the past, they came up with a historic resource based on 500 meters of strike, 20 meters width, 200 meters of depth, 6.5 million tons of ore, an average grade of 2.09 grams per ton gold. And uh, what's interesting is it had a cutoff grade of 1.5 grams. This was done in the 90s when gold was trading about uh, $250 to $300 an ounce. Those are what the cutoff grades were being used in. Is there visible gold, silver, and copper at surface? Yes, there is some visible gold in a couple of places, and this is sort of what, I guess, led the Peruvian government to do their initial exploration work. You have to remember the Peruvian government in the 70s and 80s when everything was nationalized, they had their pick of the litter of projects to be able to work on. And this is one of the ones they decided to do exploration work on and use their own money to further this project. And it wasn't until a uh, Canadian junior came in in the 90s to be able to give it further exploration work and do historic resource on it. I know sometimes Peru might be considered by some to be politically sensitive. Is that the case now? Uh, I think it's got that reputation. I mean, Peru, it's an, it's an awesome country. How can you not like it when it's like number six gold producer in the world, number two silver producer in the world, and I think number three copper producer in the world, and less than 1% of the country is being exploited today. It's had some work that was done in the past, again, by when it was everything was nationalized by the Peruvian government, and the projects that you see in production today are primarily from that work that was done 20 30 years ago. So there's lots of opportunity for further exploration. Very little exploration has actually been done in the country. There's the other side, too, where the communities can be a challenge, and you have to be willing to be able to invest time and money and go through the process. And sometimes it's very time-consuming. And, you know, when you've got investors at you to be able to get results and get results fast, it can be tempting to take shortcuts and Typically, when you take these shortcuts in these kinds of situations, they come back to bite you uh, down the road and in the future, and you've seen some of that with other companies that have had challenges in the past. Discuss the share structure of Inca One, Ed. 
This is a relatively new company, Inco One, when I first got it and restructured it and did our financing last year. We did an initial financing when we announced the acquisition of the Las Hakias project back in May of last year. We did a $2 million uh, financing, and that was to take us until we got our permits, which we're very close to getting. We've got currently 22 million shares outstanding, fully diluted, 27 million, and 43% are owned by insiders and management, including myself. When do you think the drills will get into the ground so you can further identify the resource? Well, there is a number of things that you have to do uh, in Peru, a number of steps, baseline studies, including social, economic, environmental baseline studies. You need to be able to take all that information and present it to the community, which we're doing at the end of this month. We've got a date planned to be able to do that. And uh, once you've done that, you can Then apply for your drilling permit, which takes anywhere between 7 to 45 days. So we're looking at probably somewhere at the worst case scenario, August, getting our drilling permit given to us. We plan to get the drills in the ground shortly after that. And basically, I guess you could say we'll have results somewhere in Q3. Where do you see the company headed in 12 to 16 months? I would expect that we've got our uh, phase one drilling program completed, which would be to go in and firm up the historic resource to a 43101 compliant resource, and then go along the strike once, uh, I guess, it's about 2.2 kilometers long. Only 500 meters of it has been drilled on. And we want to step out and go along that remaining 1.7 kilometers long strike and firm up what we've got potentially there. Give us a snapshot of your background, if you don't mind, Ed. Basically, I've been involved with public companies, I guess, now for about eight years. I'm involved in, on the board of directors on four other mining companies. been involved in the mining space for about three years. Primarily, I guess you could say I'm a serial entrepreneur, getting involved with companies that have been, I guess, say, need restructuring, restructure them, take them to a certain level, and either sell them or hand them off to more experienced management to take them to the next level. So is there an exit strategy for Inca One? Well, I don't think it's any surprise. We're not a producing company. We're a junior resource company. We're looking for value that have assets in the ground that are undervalued, and then finding out the problems with them, solving those problems, unlocking shareholder value, and taking it to the next level. And there's lots of opportunity out there right now. Why should we consider Inca One over the many other junior exploration companies trading today? There's a few items you have to checklist that you have to look at. One is share structure. We've already talked about that, and we've got a very uh, excellent share structure. Two is the project that you're working with. And uh, again, we've got a project here that got baked in success already. It's had some challenges in the past, but we believe that we've put systems in place to be able to solve those and make it a win-win for the communities, investors, and ourselves. Thirdly, I guess it comes down to experience management. We've got a number of people that are working with us from a win that we've had in the past with Norismont. Investors have uh, supported us from Norismont in the past after it was acquired by HUD Bay, as well as uh, employees that worked with Norismont. We've got, for example, our chief geologist, Tom Hendrickson. He was the chief geologist for Norismont in the past. Caddy Baragas is our general manager in Peru. She worked with Norismont in the past. So we've got a number of solid people that are working with us that have experience working in Peru for a number of years. So it's as if you had a Norsemont mining management team and they had a successful takeover a few years ago. That's exactly what it is, yeah. What is your relationship with the people in the government of Peru? How have you found your experience to be, Ed? Our experience has been nothing but positive. The central government is fully committed to being able to get social issues 
worked through. Peru is a mining country, and uh, without mining, they haven't got a lot other than some agriculture going at this moment and tourism. So they realize that over 70% of their exports are uh, to do with minerals, and they have to keep that going. Otherwise, you know, their economy is going to stumble. We've met with local government as well and stakeholders. We've identified through our baseline studies that over 90% of our surface landholders are coffee farmers. I happen to have a past working in coffee and past experience working in the coffee industry and was able to meet with the local stakeholders, address their concerns and issues around coffee, and be able to identify that they've got some challenges there. And We think we've put a great sustainability program in place where, uh, on average, the stakeholders are only getting about 25% of the potential yield that they should be getting. So we're working with the local coffee co-ops there to be able to go in and train up to 800 families to better farming initiatives and be able to double and triple their yields on their coffee farms as in support of them giving us for exploration rights on the surface lands. Ed, thanks very much for joining me today on the program. I appreciate your being here. Well, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to tell the story on Inca One. I've been speaking with Edward Kelly, the president of Inca One Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol IO. Their website is IncaOne.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, EllisMartinReport.com. In this segment, join me for a conversation with one of my most esteemed peers in the arena of resource sector broadcast, Al Corlin of the Corlin Economic Report. Mr. Corlin has been involved in the financial community since 1967 when he received his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Washington with a dual major in economics and Russian literature. He went on to receive his Master's in Business Administration degree with an emphasis on finance and international trade from the University of Puget Sound in 1978. His company, A.B. Corlin & Associates, specializes in completing the regulatory work that needs to be done in order for Canadian mining industries to be traded in the United States on major exchanges. Al also spends a considerable amount of time at investment conferences throughout North America, where I always visit with him. His website is kereport.com. That's kereport.com. And he was kind enough to have me on his program recently. Here's that segment with Al Corlin. You know, Ellis, you and I are both big believers in people being as informed as they possibly can uh, whenever they make an investment decision, or for that matter, whenever they make a decision on virtually anything in life. I mean, you want to get all of the input that you can. And the one thing that I think that we do together that is very, very beneficial, certainly for investors and other folks, is that we provide information on both of our programs and on both of our sites that I think you never can get too much information. And by being able to come to sources like the Ellis Martin Report and the KE Report, folks are able to, you know, really truly see the movie on the biggest possible screen that they can be looking at. And, and that's nothing but beneficial, in my opinion. Well, we urge our combined audiences, Al, to do as much research as possible. And there's plenty of places to go for that research on the Internet, beginning with our website, but not necessarily ending there. And as much information as you can possibly absorb at this time, it's still a tough place to make a decision whether or not to get in or get out or have the patience to see this market through until it turns around. Yeah, I would have to agree 100%. You know, I have to tell you, since you and I visited in Vancouver at the, at the uh, World Investment Conference up there, hasn't this been a strange precious metals market? You know, it's the Friday before the show, we were up over $60 an ounce vis-a-vis -vis gold. This past week, we've seen some 
incredibly dramatic decreases in the price in very, very short periods of time. You know, you really have to wonder if, you know, the old somebody's knocking it down theory doesn't have a whole bunch of credence. I don't know, man. Well, it's interesting. It's getting knocked down during a a time period where everyone's waiting to see if there's going to be a quantitative easing, Mm -hmm. uh, QE3, so to speak. Uh, How much of this is planned, this beatdown of the market, more or less, so that when QE happens, as it inevitably will, how far will the gold market take off if it in fact does? And one more point before you respond, Al, we're still up about $75 or so, 50 to $75 or so above what the price of gold was last year at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I realize that. You know, in terms of the QE question, I've talked about this numerous times on the Coral Economics Report, and i got to tell you, man, I am firmly convinced that vis-a-vis QE that it's been going on for a long time, just under a different format. I mean, the government is still putting money into the um, the system. I'm looking at a chart right now. It's not quite 75 bucks. It's 45.50 as of today, but you're still looking at a, almost a 3% increase from a year ago, and the drop as we're recording this thing was only 1.87%. So there's just a whole bunch of backfilling and treading water going on, in my opinion. You know what's frightening, and not necessarily to me, but the, the companies that are these junior mining companies mm-hmm. especially is while the price of, of gold may still be $50 above what it is last year, what it was last year, we may come down and test 1400 Who knows? Mm-hmm. Is that half of these junior mining companies are just dead in the water. They have no money. They can't raise money. And as our mutual uh, associate, Rick Rule, would say, they're, they're probably going to be gone in six months. Rick's comment, I thought, was he wasn't quite as dire as Doug Casey was in his presentation. But, you know, Rick brings up a very, very good point, and that is... You can't really throw a dart, you know, at a list of companies and necessarily come up with anything that makes sense because really only somewhere between 5 and 15% of the companies really, really are fundamentally sound. And and the rest of them, you know, it's, it's a, just the nature of the mining industry. The rest of them are kind of hopes and prayers. Well, how can you make an informed decision right now as, as our audience is, is having to deal with every day? You and I, at least for the most part, get to chat with some of these companies. We get to see the excitement or the stress or the sweat, Mm -hmm. if it's there or not. Uh, Our listeners just blindly heading out there on the internet trying to cipher through news releases, they're hard-pressed to do that. Having done, as you know, reporting to the Securities and Exchange Commission for mining companies for 30 years, you know, I developed a pretty interesting a pretty interesting handle on, on how to do effective due diligence on the companies. And I have to say, I have gotten to the point where in my opinion, the most important factor in looking at these companies boils down to one simple thing, and that's called the management. I mean, yes, the asset is very important. Yes, having having cash in the bank, and well, there's another asset, but, you know, having having adequate capital is very important. But, you know, I got to tell you, man, in my opinion, it all boils down to the person driving the tractor, so to speak. There are people you just, they have been successful in the past, and they're going to continue to be successful. There are other people who've just plotted along and never really done much. Those are probably the kind of deals you don't want to invest in. Well, while we have a few minutes left here, Al, who are some of the companies, or you know, give me one or two companies that you're quite fond of right now, where the management is able to 
sit it out more or less and keep doing the work they're doing on the ground, and they've got a decent amount of money in the bank. The three companies that come to mind right now that I think can definitely, without a doubt, weather the storm would be for sure New Zealand Energy. That company has done very, very well. Timmins Gold, you know, I, I've been following Timmins Gold since I bought stock at 40 cents a share a couple, three years ago. They've got a very, very solid situation. And then, and then I have to say that another one that I know is going to be, for lack of better terms, weathering the storm, you know, and this is not investment advice because I'm not a registered investment advisor by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, another one at this point in time would be Corvus Gold. I mean, these companies have all done very, very well. The other companies that we follow and the other companies that are on our website are companies that I, you know, I certainly wouldn't rule them out either. How about you? Give us two or three. Well, I like a company called, that I know you're familiar with, Silvercrest. Mm -hmm. They weathered the storm very, very nicely with their producing silver and gold mine in Mexico. I also like East Main Resources. Sure. They've a sponsor and client of our program for mm-hmm. about uh, 10, 12 years right now. Right. In the bank, solid management, they just keep exploring no matter what the market is doing. Yeah, we know Kathy and Dawn really, really well, and they are just really decent, hardworking, well-qualified people. Speaking of uh, Timmins and the area that they're uh, mining in in Mexico, and by all means, I'm a, I'm a journalist, I'm a broadcaster, I make no claim to know anything about anything involving mm-hmm. the area of, of, of finance, but uh, there's a company I invested in a few days ago in the same area that Timmins is, is uh, NWM Mining, and that's mm-hmm. all I'm going to say. I'm a shareholder. You know, the three companies that I mentioned, uh, Corvus, New Zealand Energy, and, uh, and Timmins, I am an investor in those companies also, and I know that you and I are both... You know, we both, whenever we're invested in a situation that we're talking about, we fully disclose that to our audience. Ellis, we're going to get together like this as often as we can. I appreciate your time, my friend. And I need to add that I'm also a shareholder with East Main Resources. Al, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for having me on the program. I've been speaking with Al Corlin of the Corlin Report on the web as kerreport.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. In this segment, I'm visiting with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. East Main is an active explorer in eastern Canada with an ongoing partnership with major gold producer Goldcorp. Fifty percent of this year's drilling will be focused on increasing the size of high-grade measured and indicated gold resources in the 450 and 850 west zones of East Main's Eau Claire project, which may be amenable to extraction by open pit methods. Do you think we're nearing a bottom? Well, some of the evidence certainly points to it. If you look at every chart of all the seniors, intermediates, juniors, etc., across the board, they've all been taking a shellacking, as we say in Canada. But for the first time this morning, we saw, even though gold was off and red, the seniors started off red and then bounced green pretty heartily. So, you know, perhaps this is the sign where we'll look back in the mirror and say, well, that was it and we missed it. But I think some positive should be taken out of that. Does the price of gold, whether it's bullion or share prices, have anything to do with exploration or production with regard to a company like East Main? Well, Barry Cook, one of the famous analysts, used to say, you know, the the juniors should not be influenced as much by the price of gold because we're not producing gold. However, it is a retained enterprise value in the ground, so I guess there's clearly a relationship, but there's a little bit of a indirect relationship, really, at the end of the day. You have a joint venture on one of your properties with Goldcorp. They're the largest investor in your company. You're developing your assets as a possible takeover candidate down the road. 
We are dealing with a project that is one of 13 in North America in terms of size and grade, and we're making it bigger. So Clearwater is in a unique circumstance as far as the project is concerned, and we have a very high-grade open pit resource, and there's ample evidence that we can make it bigger. And fortunately, we have a treasury in which we can do it. And the other thing that we have at our disposal is that we have a Quebec advantage. And that is, even with depressed share prices, we are able to get a premium on any placements that we do because we're working in Quebec. And that just means you can stretch the dollars a lot farther. This year, we are doing 50,000 meters of drilling for a budget of $10 million. There's companies out there that are doing comparable drill programs at four times the price. And that's where we have the Quebec advantage. And you're in an area of Quebec that's comparable to what the Timmins Gold Camp was years ago. The reason we're there in the first place is geology. And the geology that we're dealing with is a mirror image of what we've seen time and time again in these famous camps. The only difference was when we started, you had to fly for a few hundred miles in order to get to the project area. Now you can drive to it. Infrastructure is what will make the difference on any mining project. And in our case, we have a permanent road that comes right to the doorstep of the project, and we're within several miles of the cheapest power in the world. When we're ready, when that project gets to the point where it's ready to develop, the infrastructure's already in place. In a cooperative market, what would really drive your share price north? Well, I think no matter what the end game price point is, is that as long as you can keep ahead of the curve, keep your project advancing and keep your treasury topped up at a premium, those things are things that are in your control and the rest of it will take care of itself. So this is how you managed to survive all these years. In fact, this is what Macquarie brought up in terms of when they introduced the different companies at this conference making the grade. They made a specific point of our company in terms of longevity, sort of setting the bar very high and being able to last for quite some period of time and have stamina given the prevailing headwinds that we've seen time and time again. The reason we've been able to do that is we've taken advantage of circumstances as they present themselves, such as being able to acquire management of your project when gold price is a tenth of what it is now. That's a little fortuitous, it's a lot fortuitous on our behalf, but each step of the way, we've been able to take advantage of the circumstances. We were able to buy the royalty from the flagship last year outright, and so it's sort of taking advantage of what the current market conditions are enabling you. Are you looking at any possible acquisitions for East Main? The reverse is happening. Companies are screening projects that are out there, and just like we did, a number of projects filter to the top, either in terms of grade or in terms of growth, in terms of size, in terms of location. That's where our project is looking particularly attractive relative to the pack out there. In the meantime, what we're going to do is try to make it more attractive by drilling 50,000 meters. Your vision, Don, is to continuously bring value to the company. By drilling. Well, Don, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Thank you very much, Alf. I've been speaking with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, a gold exploration company trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com.
Com. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the Chief Operating Officer of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest Mines trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, now the OTCQX, as STVZF. Mr. Fear has over 25 years of international experience in a senior capacity, including exploration, acquisition, development, and production of numerous mining projects in Chile, Brazil, Honduras, Mexico, and Peru. He previously served as chief geologist with Pegasus Gold. He was a senior engineer and manager with Newmont Mining and project manager with Eldorado Gold Corp. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, B.C. Silvercrest flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located 150 kilometers northeast of Hermosillo in the state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. A three-year expansion plan is underway to double metals production at the Santa Elena mine, and exploration programs are rapidly advancing the definition of a large polymetallic deposit at the La Jolla property in Durango State, Mexico. Eric, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having us back on the air, Alice. It's always an opportunity to get the story out. Well, you've got quite a story, and you've had quite a story for a significant amount of time. I'm just looking over your latest news release, and for quarter one of 2012, silver production is up 108%, and gold ounces are up 198%. That's outstanding. Yeah, that's correct, Ellis. Part of it is that we're comparing the quarter of 2011 with the current quarter. In the quarter of 2011, we were in the ramp-up phase, so we weren't at full production. So that's part of the bump-up. The other part of the bump-up in having such a significant change in percent is that we're getting better recoveries, we're getting better throughput through our crusher at the mine site, and all of that wraps up into more ounces and more cash flow for the company. So you're saying a lot of it is about the tools? It's about the tools and, and the people. A lot of it rolls back to a lot of the planning, strategic planning. You know, you got to have smart people on the ground and boots on the ground to get this work done. I give a big hand to our, our production team that's in Mexico. Great people, great people to work with. The local people that we're using in Mexico are top-notch people. We've taken people that have been working out on, on the ranching side a year ago and trained them up, and they're doing an excellent job. It all means savings to us and uh, more cash flow and opportunities for our shareholders and potential shareholders. One of the things mining companies come across, especially if they're going into production or even the development stage or exploration stage, is finding the right personnel in the area. And you're saying that you're just training locals and putting them to work. I implemented a program before we started construction of 70% local hire local being within about 35 kilometers of the mine site. And we're at that now. So we actually got guys that are, are local guys that are at the foreman level, superintendent level, that are running the crushers, that are running the plant, that are working in the pit, and they really appreciate the job. It's a great opportunity for the community. We've got great community support. One other thing that Santa Elena, which is our flagship for Silvercrest, uh, it's the flagship mine, is that it's a very attractive area. So you're close to Hermosillo, which has great infrastructure, an international airport, over a million people, and it's a very attractive place to work because the alternative is to work up in the Sahara Madre, you're on rotation, you don't get to see your families, 
So we get uh, quite a few people that are interested in coming to Santa Elena and work for us because of that. In addition to the production that you have going on and expanding that production capability, what about further exploration and stepping out the resource itself at Santa Elena? What's happening in that direction? We got a twofold plan for this year. One is to expand the resources at Santa Elena, and I'm shooting for a 50% to 100% increase in our underground resources. We've started up a drilling program, so look forward to those news releases coming up over the next several months. Beyond Santa Elena and expanding that resource, with success of expanding that resource, it adds mine life, adds more job security, adds more cash flow to the company and, and to its shareholders. Beyond Santa Elena, we uh, have a major discovery in the state of Durango. Keep in mind that Santa Elena is in the state of Sonora, so there's quite a bit of a distance between the, the two sites. So that major discovery is called La Jolla. We just did our first NI43-101 resource in January, over 100 million ounces silver equivalent, about 60% of that silver, 30% copper, and 10% on the gold side. So there's great opportunities. We continue to drill there. we got an 80-hole program that's underway, and we're shooting for a double on that resource toward the end of this year, too. We'll see if we're successful or not. The opportunity's there. It's a big system. It's a major discovery. Great opportunity for the company to grow in that direction. I would see Silvercrest in two to three years of being a mid-tier silver-gold producer and bringing, with success, bringing La Jolla online, uh, you know, it's it's five years out. you got to get through all of your studies. But there is a, a conceptual business plan in place right now to look at the growth of the company. What kind of mine life are we looking at? Before the expansion plan, it was six years. The expansion plan at Santa Elena is adding another five years. So you're 10 to 11 years with success and getting 50% to 100% more resources underground. You're probably adding another two to three years on that life. So... I think that Santa Elena, at the end of the day, with metal prices being where they're at, is a major project over the next 10 to 15 years. While you're generating revenue through production, silver is being used as a speculative investment and as an industrial metal. We don't see the need for silver abating at all for the foreseeable future, whether it's the bullion itself or producing public company like yours. I agree with you. I mean, silver, 50% of it's used on the commodities side and 50% is industrial. So there is a balance there depending on global uh, economics and what's going on, but uh, we're very bullish on silver. Any plans beyond what we've discussed for the next two years? We're always looking at other projects. Uh, we're in a unique position right now, Ellis, that we do have a strong cash flow, although some of it's being put towards our expansion plan. We look at two to three acquisitions a month right now. I have an acquisitions team in Mexico. We love Mexico. We don't have any problems with the security there. There's great opportunities. I've previously worked in Nevada. Mexico is like Nevada 30 to 40 years ago. I mean, you can walk over, and we've just shown it. La Jolla a year ago had nothing, and one year later, it's a major discovery. So if I can go out in the field and walk over something and make a major discovery within the last year, you know that there's got to be tremendous opportunity, and we want to capture that opportunity. We don't want to overdo it because we do have a limited amount of people and a limited amount of funds, but you definitely don't want to pass up an opportunity, and we continue to look for those. And we have the management team and the qualifications to do that. 
Speaking of your management team, the man with the great vision, one of the founders of the company, CEO Scott Drever, has been a quiet and strong presence. Oh, definitely. And, and he will continue to be. I mean, Scott and I, we bat around business ideas every day. He's a great stable force in moving this company forward. There was actually three of us founders, myself, Scott, and Bernie Magnuson of Silvercrest. Beyond that uh, senior management level, there's uh, some great potential just below us. Brent McFarlane, Jed Thomas, uh, Salvador Aguayo. These are all VP positions that are critical to the growth of this company, and they got a lot of great experience and good people. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining me on the program, and thanks for the update. I look forward to speaking with you again. Okay, thank you uh, once again for the opportunity, Alice. I've been chatting with Eric Fear, Chief Operating Officer for Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and on the OTCQX as STVZF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for an impromptu, spur-of-the-moment interview with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is silver-investor.com. Has the bottom come and gone in this market? Boy, it sure looks like it to me, Ellis, at least on the equity side. We've seen very low prices in the mining stocks across the board. Basis, the GDX and the other indexes, but primarily that one, huge volume a few days ago. And usually those kind of volume increases are evidence of short covering. There's been a lot of professional money out there on the short side in these mining equities particularly, as well as the metals. When they see the opportunity, they will cover their positions, and that has taken place. I'm sure there's probably some more short covering to do, but I think the bottom is in for the mining equities. As far as the metals are concerned, it's quite possible that the bottom is in as well. I've been saying to our members and also in the public domain that I thought that we'd see the bottom in June, and I'm not going to change that yet, but I think we're close enough to a bottom for all practical purposes. Silver has gone in the $26 level two times, both times extremely briefly, what I refer to as a spike low. It comes right back up. There's only a few trades that are in that very area, and then it pops up and continues on up and starts building a base at a higher price. Are you bullish about the rest of the year? I am. You know, Normally the metals bottom in the summer months, normally August. Uh, I think, again, it could be you know May or June. I'm kind of still biased toward June based on the work that I do. But regardless, this is close enough to the final bottom as far as I'm concerned. And the fundamentals for the metals have never been better. I mean, there's so many things going on in the global financial system and a global political environment that it just begs people to take a hard look at the metals. Some of the stocks that have fallen back in my portfolio in the last few months have dropped back as much as 50%. Should we be considering buying into stocks we already own that have been depressed as well as looking for new opportunities? Well, I've been seeing for months that their stocks are undervalued and they can become more undervalued. And to buy in and plan to buy in, you know, through the summers. Having said that, one of the ones that's more speculative in the portfolio is actually here in town. I've known them for a long time. Been in the stock once, made about 800% on it, got back in it. It's underwater from where we recommended it again, but nonetheless, that stock was up like 25% yesterday. I uh, really think, uh, again, that this is the time to not be fearful. It's the time to be pretty aggressive and get into these. What do you buy? That's an individual choice again. I mean, the Morgan Report focuses on money, metals, and mining. We certainly advocate everyone starting their metals portfolio physical metal first. 
But once that's done, then you can diversify into the mining companies. And we stress, really, depending on the person, but primarily getting the top-tier cash-rich unhedged mining companies as the top-tier, and then the uh, mid-tier growth companies, and then just bet a little to win a lot in the speculative side of the portfolios. How does one follow you? Uh, there's lots of ways these days, as you know, with all the social media. I don't do them all, but I have a Twitter account. The Twitter account is SilverGuru22. I do link articles that I read daily, and these are articles that I've read and vetted that I think are important to stay attuned to the precious metals in the overall global economies. I also have a YouTube channel. A lot of time, effort, and money as far as the camera action that goes into it. These Some are actually professionally done. Most aren't. Most are just YouTube quality, but they're all pertinent to keeping everyone abreast, and that channel on YouTube is Silver Guru. And then lastly, the website itself is themorganreport.com, all one word, themorganreport.com. You go there and you can get on our free e-letter, which is weekly on the weekend, or if you are serious about these markets, you can look at three different levels of paid services. That's in the members-only side of the website, and there are three videos that actually outline exactly what you're going to get. Nowhere in this interview do I sense any negativity. Well, the market's been up for two days. You know, when I bought at the bottom, again, if this is the bottom, it feel pretty good. If it's not, I still feel good. I do believe strongly, again, that over the longer term, you're going to look back at buying silver under 30 or gold under 1600 and I've been consistently saying that for several months now to buy in there. And a lot of people are very smart in this industry, and few of them have been kind of advocating that, you know, these metals are ready for launch, and they're going to go up and all this. You know, I've stayed my ground as usual and said, you know, I don't see it that way. I think we have more consolidation, a sideways to downtrending market. And that alone, in my book, is worth something. I'm not trying to sound like I'm better than or no more than or anything else, but I do want to make clear that I don't let much influence me. In other words, my work is my work, and I stick by it, you know, win, lose, or draw. Because, you know, people that perhaps were listening to some free information from someone else might have got in at, let's say, much higher prices and not had any cash left to take care of the opportunity that exists today. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm going to give you some unsolicited advice. We may be heading into a time period of continued economic stress and potential collapse. There's always a chance that for some unknown reason that I'm not aware of, nor anyone else for that matter, that we could by some miracle see an economic boom during the next year, or two, or five, or ten. I don't think so, but... Anything is possible. Let's prepare for our own austerity. Perhaps your financial assets are diversified into a variety of venues discussed on this program previously. I will not suggest you buy or invest in anything in particular. I won't suggest that you sell any of these financial assets or liquidate them necessarily. You've heard the pitch about gold and silver bullion, and you've heard the pitch about stocks and ETFs, commodities, hard and soft. I'm not pitching any of that right now. What I'm going to suggest to you is much simpler and safer than investing in the typical things we talk about here or what you may run into by following other pundits or journalists, advisors, or pitchmen. I'm suggesting now that you stop using your credit cards for long-term debt. If you can pay down or pay off any remaining balances, do so. Use these cards if you must, but pay them off each month as you do, completely if you can as if each one was an American Express card. Using these cards for business expenses or 
to get travel points or purchase points is fine. But pay your balances down and pay these cards off if you can. If you can't afford to buy something otherwise, do not do it for an indefinite time period. And I don't see any change in the near future. Cash will always be cash, and the way we buy and sell what we need, cash is the tool. Only buy what you need. Convert whatever you don't need that you may own into cash and keep it. Look around. Take an inventory of what you have and have a metaphorical sale of sorts. A flea market sale. A garage sale. Get rid of everything you don't need and don't use. And forget about buying new gadgets and toys. There's no intrinsic long-term value in that. You can't eat it down the road. You can't pay bills with it. Liquidate protect your stash of cash. Times may get tougher. I'm an optimist, and I hope and believe that the best is always possible. But if tougher times are on the horizon, there's no harm in being ready, being prepared. Consolidate, liquidate, and prepare. I'm Ellis Martin. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.